Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. The pandemic and lockdown have contributed to conditions that experts have described as the perfect storm for eating disorders. Specialists have seen a huge rise in the number of referrals in the past 18 months, with the Royal College of Paediatrics reporting that some units are seeing a doubling, tripling or even quadrupling of cases compared with 2019. So as GPs, what do we need to know about eating disorders? In this episode, we'll be hearing from a specialist about the flags that might alert GPs to eating disorders in their young patients and get advice on management. And we'll also be hearing from two people now in recovery with their tips for how GPs can best support people with a history of eating disorders in their care. I'm Navjoit Lada, a GP and clinical editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by Jenny and Tom. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Navjoit. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And hi, Tom. Hi, Navjoit. I'm Tom Nolan. I'm also a GP and clinical editor for the BMJ. Great. Well, um, we've been talking for a while about doing an episode um, on eating disorders, and I think just uh, it has definitely, I felt, been in my consciousness more and more over the pandemic. And I don't know if it's something that you've seen or have thoughts on um, during this time period as well. Tom, what's the picture like um, for eating disorders and services in your area? Yeah, it's 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 looking difficult. I think that, that what we've noticed is probably a longer wait to, to, to seek help or to get, to get help. Uh, we used to have a system where you know, people can self-refer and I think because of the demands and the increased workload that that is currently not not available so so we're back to a more traditional system of referral and I think waiting times are increasing um yeah and and that's 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 really 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 terrible I suppose there's a broader problem if I'm thinking about children and mental health is really aware of the the lack of resource and huge waiting times in, in, in CAMS or child and adolescent mental health services. Um, so yeah, very glad we're covering this and, and really want to know, yeah, as a GP, like where my role is, it's not an area I feel particularly um, skilled perhaps or comfortable in and fearful that I might say the wrong thing or support in the wrong way, which is actually counterproductive. So looking forward to learning more about all this today yeah yeah me too and I think one of the things we're definitely hoping to address is given that there might be longer wait times how Mm. what can GPs do in that time as well when when you might be waiting for a a specialist service um, to come in as well and Jenny how about you is this something you've seen um, much of not that I've seen in person because lockdown and (laughs) and all these other things. But actually, um, I think this episode is really timely for a number of reasons, and I'm really interested to hear um, the interviews. But there was just last week a um, a newspaper article summarizing a study that had been done by a team at the University of Auckland, which is describing the way in which um, even in New Zealand, which has seen fewer days of lockdown than almost any other country, although that may be changing given recent history, um, but even um, even New Zealand, which has had a relatively good run, uh, there has been a surge in eating disorders um, mm. here. So this study looked at 
uh, clinical records of patients in a region of New Zealand comparing 2019 and 2020 and found a higher number of both children and adults who were admitted to hospital for the first time with eating disorders and mostly um, anorexia. So I think that that, particularly coming from this country, which has had a more kind of, um, which has had less time in lockdown, uh, I think it shows that this that there there is probably a, a really concerning um, correlation here, and something about kind of um, the uncertainty of the times, the kind of um, fear and anxiety, um, not to mention being in an in an environment at home where. Um, perhaps you have different levels of control over what you may or may not eating, um, all might be contributing to, 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 um, the surge that, that has been reported. Yeah. Well, this seems like a good time to move to our first interview. Um, and although eating disorders can present at any age, actually many start in mid-adolescence and that can be an important and formative time to address, you know, any thoughts and behaviours that might arise. So I spoke to Simon Chapman, who's a consultant in paediatrics, diabetes and adolescent medicine at King's College Hospital in London, who also cares for young people as part of the eating disorders service at, um, at the Maudsley Hospital in London. Um, and I started out by asking him about the things that have changed about eating disorders in recent years and also about how GPs might spot um, subtle signs um, of eating disorders in young people. Uh, and that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico legal advice, including 24 7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims, we're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now back to our interview with Simon Chapman. The evidence has changed over the last sort of 15, 20 years, really. And there used to be, when I was training, this belief that you know, you just needed to put somebody in a specialist unit, which was staffed by experts like therapists and psychiatrists and dietitians that sort of really understood the condition and that they would be removed from their families and they would have all of this good therapeutic work and then they would, you know, be discharged, recovered, as it were. Um, and actually, 
we now know the evidence base for that sort of intervention is a bit nuanced. So these eating disorder units or, you know, they're, they, they're very good at keeping people safe um, and helping people restore weight. But um, I think whether or not they induce recovery is mm. altogether a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually for us in sort of the world of children and young people, you know, the determinants of recovery, if you see what I mean, you know, what is it that helps people to recover? Well, for children and young people, that's going to be their schools and their friends and their family. You know, all of those things that give you purpose and give you self-identity and, you know, all of those things. That kind of shift in the management. Yeah, really interesting. And how does that tally with the, well, maybe not tally with, but, you know, you see this change in how the approach to management has changed. And I think also we hear a lot, um, the sort of narrative is that, eating disorders are on the rise in young people. Mm-hmm. Is that your experience as well, that this is becoming yeah, more so of a So the problem? last 18 months have been totally unprecedented. I mean, I think that's true for all mental health presentations, you know, in children generally, but particularly for eating disorders, it's the best documented probably. And it's not just in the UK, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's been lots of kind of... Um, lots of conjecture about why it might be you know what do we have in common with all the countries where this has happened well we've all got lockdown in common and and lockdown has been particularly toxic for children and young people you know i think we mustn't underestimate the sacrifice their generation has made for ours there's there's a huge amount of pressure we put on our children to achieve and to kind of fit a particular mold which is all about self-sufficiency and independence and success and, and so on. And then if on the one hand you, you set people up like that and then you remove it in the other by saying, no, you can't go to school and you can't see your friends and you, you can't go to clubs and you can't follow your dream. You add that uncertainty for people who already have, you know, maybe potential for anxiety or have some vulnerability there. Um, and you add on top of that, isolation so you've got nothing else to do but sit and stew with your thoughts i think lots of different reasons why they sometimes call it the perfect storm in the literature Mm. but i think it's these are sort of the elements and actually also it made worse by some there was food insecurity right at the beginning of the pandemic too so for those people who were on meal plans that could only eat certain types of food and so on you know you couldn't buy it in the shops yeah i mean it sounds like it's been an incredibly difficult time and just thinking i mean from the perspective of um young people and their families just what an incredibly difficult um experience that must be um who gets eating disorders because i think there's this conception that it is mainly i don't know teenage girls for example but i mean is that who you predominantly see or is is it a more of a mixed population it's quite a mixed population so i don't i don't think it's necessarily all girls from private schools and things which is is a kind of a belief i think it's broader than that but it is more common in women than men absolutely you know there's a sort of 90 10 type preponderance so it does tend to be young women rather than young men but you know young men are on the rise and also younger people so there is this young cohort of sort of nine to 13 year olds who are also tricky because they don't really know what calories are and they don't quite have the body image stuff that comes with an eating problem but they do stop eating and it is because of anxiety 
Right. So the little kids that just stop eating um, are a bit more complicated. But the, the vast, so, so in the main, it's women rather than men. But the boys, in a funny way, are more vulnerable because people people don't think of them as having an eating disorder. Right. Like in, I suppose in the midst of all this kind of milieu that you've talked about of how an eating disorder might develop, um, GPs might be the first uh, health professionals to see a young person with a possible eating disorder. Can we talk a little bit about what kind of flags might alert a GP to the possibility of an eating disorder in, in someone that we're seeing? Totally. So the usual thing would is actually, you know, we normally applaud, applaud it in our young people when our young people start you know focusing more at school they start not eating crisps and drinking coca-cola and instead they you know they want to eat good quality food and they're maybe you know doing more sport and you know running or whatever and starting to work out and and for most parents actually that's a really positive thing particularly when they're sort of 13 or 14 you think great you know year nine whatever they're they're really really taking control they're becoming that that image of our kids that we want them to be so self-sufficient, independent, you know, confident. Uh, but what often happens is it takes on a quality a, a few months in that is suddenly less comfortable and kids are eating less The kind of the, 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 conflict can arise around the table there's furtiveness about it you know people coming home with packed lunches uneaten food being discarded and there's a kind of anxiety around the whole situation and families sometimes they miss it to start with i think from the point of view of a, of a gp the kind of story you might get is as a worried usually the parents who are worried that they've noticed that their young person is eating difficult, differently, that there's conflict now arising around food and that they're very often purging type behaviours. So what do I mean by that? Purging, it means that you're trying to burn off those calories that you have found yourself eating by exercising loads. So kids might do star jumps and we fit and all this stuff in their bedrooms. Um, they might go for long runs, um, so there's it purging typically is usually exercise based because that's much more whatever normal acceptable visible you know people wouldn't notice other types of purging like vomiting and so on does also occur and it's, you know but it's it's more furtive and it's hidden away um and people may not notice and i think if you're a, a general practitioner in clinic you can ask these questions really directly about you know what's happening at home what is your young person if they're not there in the clinic with you? And if they are in the clinic with you, you might ask them, you know, about their eating and what they're doing and what their beliefs are about food. And, and there is lots of misconceptions about what calories are and what they can do and what they, you know, how many calories is normal. You know, people often surprised that 2000 calories is a normal amount to eat. And that, you know, a third of that at least should be carbohydrate. Mm. There's a huge fear at the moment of, you know, carbohydrates and what they might do. And total misunderstanding that the body actually converts one food group to another. Um, so omitting carbohydrates doesn't necessarily get rid of glucose. So that all of these things and, and just even asking about what people want and how much of their well-being is defined by the way they look. 
you know, one of the criteria in the diagnosis of an eating disorder is what they call the cognitions. And the cognitions are the this kind of this overvalued belief a person might have about their weight and their shape as being part of their sense of self-worth. So there's the these are the cognitions and they can consume a person's daily thoughts, you know, it's, it's sort of at the exclusion of everything else. So it, it mm. rather imprisons you. People set themselves little rules, which sound very like OCD quite often, which are things like, you know, I can't eat more calories today than I did yesterday. And, you know, there's real fear of mm. calories, but they also develop physical symptoms, which are of a slowing metabolism. So they become cold all the time. There's a quality to that cold, which is, you know, more than just leaving the house without your jacket. You know, I've seen people burn themselves with hot water bottles and, and against the radiator. So these are, it's a sort of, cause you lose your body fat. So your core temperature drops and that causes you to develop lanugo hair, for example. It's like a nice physical sign that you can find on examination. It's really specific and very sensitive. Um, you they they get dizzy. Dizzy is really common symptom. You don't have to eat, you know, for very long before you start feeling a bit lightheaded when you stand up. Um, and any kind of weight loss for me in a child actually is suspicious. You know, if you look at a growth chart, those lines that you see they all go upwards. There's at no point in a child's life do they ever go down. So weight loss is always suspicious for me. Um, and of course, we always have to think, could it be celiac disease or could it be inflammatory bowel disease or something else? But once you've worked your way through your sieve, um, you know, because all of those will have symptoms of one mm -hmm. sort or another. And if if you have a young person who's got no symptoms, has anxiety around food, there's lots of conflict, there's lots of fear about, you know, various things. I think you can be quite suspicious that this is going to be like an eating disorder and it's really important to be suspicious and to intervene early mm -hmm. we know that the earlier you get involved and you raise the concern actually the quicker you can catch somebody before they fall too far mm -hmm. so the intervention is always early referral the other thing that's really important is this concept of insight and and that's where it's probably where it becomes an eating disorder is that's the tipping point when people around are raising the alarm but the young person rather than use that as an opportunity to reflect actually redoubles their efforts mm. Um, so lots to kind of reflect on there. And I think, you know, sort of slightly sombre, I think, as we come out of li listening to that, it is, um, it, I mean, it is distressing, I think, to, to hear about that and to hear about, along with many other ways that young people have been affected, particularly during lockdown. But I think a lot, there are, were a lot of trends maybe that were happening before or conditions that were contributing to this um, before. Um, Jenny, what, what were your thoughts on, on hearing that? Yeah, I mean, really difficult to listen to, especially as we were saying the bit about um, when little children stop eating due to anxiety, like how utterly heartbreaking. Um, and I think about my own kids and what I would do if they just kind of stopped eating and started, you know, really like dropping weight more and more. It would be it would be terrifying. Um, 
And so on that note, I thought that the kind of um, clinical advice of, you know, being really suspicious whenever you see any kind of weight loss in a kid, making sure that this is on the differential, even um, as as he noted in a, in a boy, I think is really important um, to keep in mind. And I also couldn't help wondering, um, listening to kind of how this has been uh, unprecedented before and that there's been this perfect storm and that, you know, reflecting on the research that I was mentioning earlier that's been done in New Zealand, that all of this seems to have been related to lockdown. Um, And then with the leak of the research that was done internally at Facebook and Francis Hogan testifying um, in the U.S. Congress in early October, demonstrating that Facebook was aware of internal research that um, correlated Instagram use with um, teen girls saying that it made their eating disorders worse. I can't help but wonder that um, lockdown might be kind of like a proxy indicator for screen time or that like screen time is going up in lockdown and like could social media be having this kind of or at least playing a major role in mm. the in the incredible rise in mm. eating disorders. Yeah. And then you think also about how certainly in the UK um, during lockdown, there was a lot of discussion about obesity being a risk factor for poor outcomes in COVID for, you know, the prime minister here, Boris Johnson, you know, after he came out of hospital, he, you know, really wanted to campaign against um, rising rates of obesity. And, you know, we just live in a diet culture anyway. And you just think about all those messages as well that have been coming through and maybe existed before, but again, have been exacerbated by, by lockdown. Um, Tom, how about you? What were your thoughts? Hmm. Uh, I got me thinking about the consultation, really, and um, two circumstances which are kind of familiar to me. One is perhaps where the parents and the child are presenting with a physical problem like weight loss, mm. um, and um, and you're thinking, could this be an eating disorder? Uh, and then perhaps the other where the, the parent thinks it might be an eating disorder, but you need to have that conversation with the, the, the young person. Um, it got me thinking about, um, it might sound a bit random, but um, we've been rereading Roger Neighbour and the inner consultation lately. Um, and in it, he talks about the two sides of your brain and the, the responder and the organiser. And the responder being the voice in your head, which is like, oh gosh, this could be an eating disorder. What am I going to do? And, you know, that kind of subjective kind of res- emotional response that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and and the organizer being more the you know take a history and you know this is the next question to ask yeah uh, and I think listening to Simon talk um i I guess I feel that I guess you've got to go to your organizer and actually ask the questions and do what we know we're really good at doing but sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable with, which is you know have the conversation with the young person, get the parent out of the room, you know ask the questions and, and just go go there and and, and trust that that will be the best approach um, and not, not let yourself get kind of sidetracked too much by all the, the other kind of stuff going on in your brain because you're so kind of worried and confused and, and so on. I don't think there is a topic that I am more awkward about as a clinician than this one. Mm. Like mm. exactly what you're saying, Tom, like my brain is freaking out. <laughs> 
I I'm trying to mm. ask these questions in a way that like makes me feel down to earth and not threatening and like mm, mm. trying to level with somebody at the same time getting them to tell you something incredibly like sensitive and perhaps even secret and yeah, yeah never yeah. am I more awkward than when I am asking about the possibility of yeah. disordered eating well this might be a good time to go to our second interview which is we're hearing from Simon again and I think he does have some more tips on how to take this topic from something that might be uh, in your responder part in, and give you some tips on how to um, get more organized about it. I mean, I completely agree. Communicating around eating disorders is one of those things that we can have something of a hang up about. And of course, you know, it's something you want to bring up in a sensitive and thoughtful way. Um, so I asked Simon for his tips on how best to ask questions about eating disorders. Um, Let's hear from him now. I guess some of the stumbling blocks that people might have towards doing parts of the assessment. So I know that um, when we were talking about this before recording this interview, when the podcast hosts were talking about this, we were talking about, you know, sometimes we struggle with how to ask the questions and how and the sort of language we use and then also issues around you know, depending on the age of the young person should the should we talk to them with the parents without the parents both and then you know mm. all these complexities around examination as well so i suppose just in general how do you approach that it's a really good question and the general rule for for teenage and young people is that you get rid of the parents so anybody that's 12 13 or up if you if there's something that you want to know about, if possible, try and see them on their own. But eating disorders, I would say, is a bit different. Partly eating disorders, people have no insight in the main into their difficulties. So they're going to explain it away. And they're mm. terrified that you might find something that would mean they'd have to eat and would tell their parents and would mean they'd have to stop exercising and all this. So they, they're going to actively not want to disclose um, and the second thing is that actually the, the treatment for an eating disorder is what they call family therapy. And what it means is you use the resources of the family to restore eating for the young person. So you basically you accept that the young person has no insight. You accept that you cannot wait for them to recover on their own or to have some chink of realization they need to eat. Because that's really all the treatment is, you know, the food is the treatment. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think this is another, this is another myth about, you know, they need therapy or whatever. Actually, most people in eating disorder may need therapy later on, but what they really need is food and they need to be nourished mm -hmm. because they're too ill. You know, their brain is starved, let alone the rest of them to be able cognitively to engage with any of the difficult concepts that therapy demands. I just wanted to talk... To talk a little bit about management then. Um, I mean, given um, services are so busy, as you've, uh, as you've mentioned, it seems like, you know, the decision to refer is just one part of the equation, but it might be a little bit of time before that appointment comes around. Um, what's your advice to GPs and to patients and their families who are waiting referral? I mean, is there anything that you think GPs 
should be doing in that time or can be doing in that time. We do this thing called externalization that can be quite helpful. So what does externalization mean? It's about saying that when you become malnourished, it kind of changes your personality altogether. People lose their joy and their happiness and they become sort of, you know, totally consumed by the thoughts and worries about food and eating and everything that goes with it. To the extent that some people literally hear a voice on their shoulder telling them, you know, to follow the rules and not eat this much, not do that and so on. And, um, and, and so we call it, we externalize that voice and we call it anorexia. And so that's quite helpful in the clinic room to say, look, you know, you are no longer the person you were. You've become consumed by this thing, this anorexia thing. And so by, by, by externalizing it, in effect, you're siding, you're forming a kind of therapeutic relationship with the young person and, of course, their parents, but at the same time being quite challenging, which is to the eating disorder, so you can say quite challenging things to a young person about their beliefs around their body weight and shape and eating and calories. And, and, and you know, you can say, I, you have to eat and this is really important and so on, because it's about your physical, you know, rest, your physical health recovery, which are quite challenging things to say. But at the same time, you can say them in that way because you're externalizing anorexia, if I'm making sense here. You're, you're challenging the eating disorder. You're not challenging the person with the eating disorder mm. and you're making a distinction between those two things. So that's quite helpful because you can do that in the clinic room. You know, I can do it on the board round. I can, I can talk about externalizing illness and I can, I can talk about the person that used to be happy and well and how they used to be and what they've become, if you see what I mean. Mm. So, so externalizing illness is a thing that anybody can do in a clinic and it, that helps the family also see that their daughter or their son is also become different. It validates what, what they, you know, they may very well be telling you in lots of different ways. So that is helpful. Um, so, and, and then establishing food as front and center for the treatment, I think is the second thing that, that, that you can do, you know, about micromanaging the day, making sure that all those meals are supervised, that they're a good size uh, and that, you know, they're, that they're happening, they're not being avoided. And that maybe, you know, if somebody's very frail, that you can write to the school and make sure that they don't go to PE and they're not doing sport and they're, you know, they're off clubs and things like that. So that the the narrative in the household is that the young person is ill, they're frail, they have medical problem, they need support and they need to eat. That's their primary treatment. And everybody has to work together to make sure that they complete all their meals and snacks across the day. One of the other things that um, Simon mentioned, which we didn't play out just now, was also the role of the GP as a kind of um, external figure of, you know, a, tr- a trusted professional authority figure. And that, you know, we, we might have a role in um, 
you know, sort of breaking through some of that, uh, you know, where he talked about the lack of insight that actually a GP can help, uh, might help see this as more of a problem where a young person might. And, um, you know, and how, you know, it's really important to kind of listen also to, you know, externalise this problem as he talked about that, you know, people are more than their eating disorders and this is something that's kind of separate to them. And I was I was looking up... Um, research uh, that's been done and that was presented by BEAT, the Eating Disorders Charity, and we'll be hearing from some of their ambassadors um, coming up. Uh, but that they said that a lot of, um, although there is this awkwardness about raising this issue, um, a lot of uh, young people, people with eating disorders, feel, you know, that they feel helped by the fact that that concern is there and, and bringing it up, you know, it it sort of expresses a form of care. Um, so is important. I found, um, I mean, that's that's really helpful. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm joking somewhat, but um, I think it's, it's always awkward in some ways to talk about it for the reasons that Simon mentions, you know, this, unlike other things, is, is when people actively do not want to disclose something. <laughs> and that's really, really hard to get at. Um, what I found really fascinating here was this concept of externalization, which I'd never heard of in this way. Um, and, and I find it really compelling. Like, it, it's, it's a strategy that can be used, you know, in parenting, like, um, when your child is doing something that you want to stop, you can, you know, use a puppet and say, oh, did, did bad Mickey Mouse do it? Or did the puppet do it? And you can, you can already kind of do that, um, in, in other areas, but to actively call the problem something else and like, give it a name and really point to something else as the problem, I think is really, really fascinating in terms of allowing people to kind of begin to understand this as something that um, can be treated and that doesn't mean that you as a child are wrong or damaged or bad. Mm. Um, And I'll just say, just as this kind of... um, random pop culture reference there was actually a song by a band named silver chair in 1999 called um anna's song and uh or open fire and the first stanza is um please die anna for as long as you're here we're not you make the sound of laughter and sharpened nails seem softer and it's it is it's a it's a anorexia song um and it really embodies this this thing where like they're naming Anna mm-hmm. is the disease that as long as you're here, we're not. Um, I, anyway, I found that really, really fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. Mm. Um, Tom. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought. What I was about to say. Um, oh yeah. And I think yeah, the conversations we can sometimes have with family members and, and it's so despaired and upset and, devastated about where's my child where's the person I I love it must be so um awful um and I can see how powerful this idea of of externalizing and naming it would be for for them and can actually help to move forward and start to see um 
light at the end of the tunnel or so that, that there can be some improvement um yeah so yeah that's 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 really great um one thing i thought i might mention is um as i've spoken to simon previously about some of the other things that, that gps might do in, and particularly in the more um people with more severe um symptoms and not being quite sure of what physical health checks to to, to do or when when somebody may need admission or an urgent referral and that that sort of thing i don't know if that's um something that that we we discussed but there's um there's these things called the marzipan guidelines which i hadn't heard of um and there's some very clear sort of red amber green a bit like the nice guidelines for for the the febrile child um so if if anyone's not sure of what sort of markers of of disease they should be looking for in when doing a physical assessment i definitely recommend just just googling the marzipan guidelines because um very useful yeah thanks very much tom for raising that uh we we can put the links to the marzipan guidelines in the show notes because as you say they are very useful resource um yeah i mean i think the other thing that we were really keen to do as part of this episode was to hear from people with lived experience of eating disorders about um their experience really of um seeing their gp and what they found helpful what was less helpful and particularly um in their recovery in their care you know what what are some of the tips and pointers they might have so I spoke to Zoe John and Victoria Adoniji who are both um, ambassadors for the eating disorders charity BEAT and uh, we talked a little bit about um, their journeys their experience of their GP and they're both now thankfully recovered and also so we we touched on a little bit about um now that they are in their recovery, what are some of the things that are helpful for them from their from their GP? So let's have a listen to Zoe and Victoria. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't have the best experience um, with GPs. So I, I think I visited a GP when I was um, experiencing bulimia, I think when I was about... 20, 21, I think it was. Um, and I went in there for a, a kind of another mental health issue um, and also mentioned, I think um, I have a problem, I'm bulimic. And his response was very blasé. He looked me up and down and he said, oh, I think you'll be all right. Because I, I was I was what some people would say o- overweight anyway. So that was very dismissive and he was very dismissive of my other queries about my mental health, which is why I've never gone back to have uh, assessment or review. Yeah, I'm so sorry um, to hear that. And um, just reflecting on that scenario that, you know, your eating disorders were part of a broader presentation, you know, it was related to other things and, um, one kind of learning point maybe is that for me as a GP is if someone's coming in with what I think might be anxiety or what I think might be something else is just to probe a bit more around that and not miss those cues for for other Mm. things as well um okay well um Victoria how about you what what were your experiences of seeing your GP like my experiences were fairly similar to Zoe in a way sadly I think they, they have been negative 
Um, and it became a bit of a narrative all the way through my experience with GPs. It was very much based on racial stereotypes and assumptions about how my eating habits might look as for an African family, what my body shape or size or or look would assumed be for being a black woman. So, oh, well, that, that's kind of standard or that's normal or, you know, it's not that bad and, and that sort of language. Um, the support that I did get that were good, that was good, came from when I went to my GP years later. Um, that doctor was absolutely fantastic. She was very empathetic. She very much talked to me as a person, not trying to, the conversation around it wasn't trying to delve into, you know, what do you eat or what do you do or what is this? It was just very much like, okay, so what are you struggling with? What, what's your day-to-day -day look like? Who are you as a person, as Victoria? And that's how we ended up having the conversation. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I'm again, I'm so sorry that that, that has been, you know, that there has been that bad in there with the good. Um, just, just thinking more about the practice as well and, you know, in seeing GPs sort of uh, as you, you know, you might go to the practice related to something else. Are there any things that um, you've uh, asked for or that you found helpful in sort of recognising, you know, your, your past of eating disorders? Um, yeah, I think especially on weight and especially on BMI, I think BMI can be very problematic <laughs> in a range of ways. But I had... Um, Again, I think it all comes down to the person making the assessment and being understanding. So comparing two of the same situations, I went to, um, I think it was the, the nurse for just regular contraceptive pill review, seeing how things are going. Um, I put my weight down and she looked at the weight. She went, oh, yeah, I mean, that could be a bit heavy, but, you know, I can see you're really strong and um, I said, well, yeah, and I train a lot. And she was like, yeah, muscle weighs more. You know, you look fit, you look healthy. And um, and that was fine. I went to the GP at a different place and he tried to coerce me into a particular path of contraception when I said no. And then he went on to my weight and would not let me leave the room. We were in there for about 20 minutes talking about BMI. And I said to him, I have had several eating disorders. I am I am also an athlete who is performing at a high level. I think I'm okay. And he would not he would not leave it. And I left that GP in tears. I'm a much stronger person than I was before. And even I was thinking negative things about myself again. And I'm thinking of anyone that goes into that same GP, that GP would cause problems. So um two very different scenarios of what, what yeah. to do really yeah um so but. so in that scenario if um you know because I guess that unfortunately there is this kind of conflation with weight and health and not actually seeing them as two very distinct things and actually sometimes you're particularly thinking about eating disorders where you know you might sort of say all well, that well, that weight looks healthy but again not not sort of looking at the person at all and yeah. similarly the other the other way where you know a person can be healthy and not have any kind of impact on their life but you know as this um you know as GP sometimes do or any any clinicians might do is fixate on a number um at the expense of the person but what 
what in that scenario, like how could that have gone better? Listen and respect me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing. I There was no respect and there was no, he just did not listen to me. Like, and relating back to that, you know, the BMI problem is my healthy weight, according to BMI, was when I was most at risk. Right. You know, that's when I I had anorexic tendencies, but I was a, a normal overweight, normal slash overweight body. You know, that's when I was most at risk. And this is, I think, why I get so upset is you want me to be this number. And if I was that number now, I, would, I wouldn't I would be able to get out of bed. Like, yeah. my body's not meant to be that. And Victoria, just that, that same question to you about are there things that the practice or that clinicians can do um, to that you found helpful? I've been to some GPs recently and they've seen from my notes that I've had a history of eating disorder and they'll say, oh, well, we need to weigh you, but let me cover that, cover it so you don't see it. And they just, as an automatic, it's not a, you need to know the number. It's just that we need to for whatever we're doing, but you don't need to. And I think that sort of understanding and thinking about the person as an individual and what that person would need, it's the same as if someone walked in and had you know, was missing a limb, you would make sure that the what you needed from them was adequate and that you got them a seat and they were able to do the things they needed to do. It's the same sort of um, approach, I think. If I came in and I was suddenly four times the size I was last month, then there's a discussion to be had about my, you know, my weight. But if I've come in and I'm a little bit bigger, well, this, you know, it's not the end of the world. And it's got nothing to do with what I'm there for. Mm. It doesn't need to be a discussion. So that's all been so helpful um, to hear. And definitely, I think a lot, I mean, I'm thinking personally for me as, as a sort of GP to reflect on. Is, do you have any kind of last um, messages or, uh, you know, tips or, I don't know, potential resources that people could look at if they're interested? Um, Zoe, any thoughts? Um, I think from my perspective, something I will always mention and stress is every form of eating disorder is serious you're going to have people reaching out for help who probably already don't feel good enough and already don't feel validated in their experience so don't turn them away don't undermine it don't use kind of toxic positivity almost Mm -hmm. like oh you know tomorrow will be a better day well it might be but I'll still have an eating disorder um (laughs) so I think, yeah, just listen and really try and and do the best you can to to hear what people are saying. Um, And I guess the other thing is there is a lot of help available. I know Beats has a lot of different resources for if you're more confident talking over the phone, there's the phone lines or there's group chats or there's, uh, you know, kind of text messaging services. There's a lot of stuff that you can use in a lot of different ways so that's what um, I would suggest anyway. Thank you and Victoria? Um, I think my biggest one is to and I've had this someone has told me this but to never say that eating disorders are not recoverable you can overcome them you can have a, a healthy relationship with food and I think to never give definite statements like that because it really does dishearten someone when they've made that step to come in and and speak about it um I would say to also not try and I think the the intention is to do good but to try and fix it straight away to say oh you can just 
eat this or you can just do more of this that's that really simplifies something that's actually very complex so i would advise pointing to lots of different places there's so many different charities obviously there's beat but there's also ones that are specific for teenagers or those um who are on the spectrum or there's just lots of different places where you can go and find tailored resources that can help you Mm. i would the other thing i would love to see more of is praise for coming in and talking to someone about it because going to the doctors as it is is terrifying you you are highly trained and skilled people but you know for us normal people who just wonder and we're like i don't know what's wrong i'm terrified over you know i don't feel good in myself and just to have someone sit there and go you know it sounds like you've got x y and z or it sounds like there's a lot going on but thank you and well done for taking a step to come in it makes you feel like actually i'm doing something that because inside yourself you feel like you're going against everything that you've created your normal world your your safety is something that is is destroying you and to, t- to take the step and say i'm scared and then to have no one go well well done or thank you or keep going you kind of go right well that was wrong i've got to go back to that very dangerous habit that i had before and that's not what we need we need to sort of say to people you know good and and then to say you've done the the hardest bit right now and then here are a bunch of places you can go to see other people who have overcome it or who can talk to you and relate to what you're going through and that might not be the gp in front of you and i think it's okay for them to say i'm not the best person i will find the best person lots of um useful tips and advice uh there was there anything that stood out to you tom yeah well yeah like you say a lot a lot of stuff of course the the yeah the the experiences they've had with, with some gps is always hard to to hear that and it, it just important for us to, re- to remind ourselves i think that that the damage we can do with with the wrong you know attitude and yeah, um, and of course we all like to think, oh, well, that that would never be me, and I hope I'm, I would never be like that. But even even some of the smaller comments or that, that we make, or or just way we can come across, can can be very damaging. Um, uh, I, I, I thought that it was really interesting when she mentioned about um, sort of portraying eating disorders as something that you'd never recover from, and that that being very. Um, or potentially very very harmful and because I have heard that quite a lot I've, I've certainly I don't know where I've heard it but I've certainly got this idea in my head that you know people say well you you never you, you never sort of you've always had the eating disorder is always with you and 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 that being um, spoken of as, as a, a helpful way of framing it but I can see why, why it wouldn't be so it's it's just really interesting and, and useful to hear that that point of view yeah yeah, I mean, I mean, I agree with you. And so sad that they had those experiences. And interesting, in both cases, it, it seemed to relate to a kind of stereotype of who gets eating disorders that um, that can be quite damaging, I think. Um, Jenny, how about you? Was there anything that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, very much on that note, I, I kind of wrote down here, every form of eating disorder is serious. And I think that really resonated with me and and we probably do have kind of an idea in our head of who is a person struggling with an eating disorder and it's really important to remember that you cannot tell from the outside no matter how a person looks and um you know the gosh it was harrowing to hear 
particularly some of those, you know, racist comments. Um, that's about, you know, a person's weight. Um, and that that's really, that's, I'm, I'm struggling because that's, um, it's just like so inappropriate. (laughs) Um, but also, um, you know, we need to keep an open mind about who might be struggling with this. And, and I think even having care not to kind of rank the severity of eating disorders in our own judgment here. Like, um, you know, people can be struggling just as much with a binge eating disorder as they can be with bulimia or anorexia and, and could appear, you know, a healthy, a quote unquote healthy weight from the outside. Yeah, I think you're right. The appearance doesn't, it's not a reflection of kind of mental turmoil, I guess. Um, Yeah, I I think one of the things that really struck me and which I will try to do more of, you know, not just in this context, but with other consultations as well, is recognising, I think, the bravery that it takes for people to come in Mm -hmm. sometimes. I mean, that's such a um, simple but quite powerful thing to do, I think. Um, And yeah, that, that really stayed with me as well. Um, well, I think we've we've had a kind of deep dive into this and I hope um, you feel a bit more confident um, in addressing this and raising this with uh, patients. I feel I do, but, you know, I think it is going to be one of those things that probably always does feel a bit um, challenging, but hopefully now we can uh, respond more with our organiser brain mm. and not just the <laughs> responder brain. Um, so- Definitely. Definitely enough. To, I mean, some episodes we, we at the end we realise we haven't moved much forward, further forward. But I think this is one where I definitely have learnt a lot and yeah, got a lot of useful, um, practical things as well as better understanding. So, thank you. Great. Let's leave it there. Thanks so much to our guests, uh, Simon, Zoe and Victoria. And thanks to, as always, to uh, my co-hosts. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Avjoy. See you next time. And thank you, Jenny. Thank you. See you next time. We'll leave uh, links to some of those resources. So the Marzipan guideline and the BEAT guidance as well um, on our, in the show notes. And please do... Uh, like us and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode i'm navjoit larder bye for now